he was depressed and lonely and angry or a mixture of all those things. And that this had become stronger and stronger in him. From the start of his law course, Frank Witkevich stood out a little bit as someone who stood out a little bit. He was a quiet man who'd never particularly distinguished himself before, but on this day, he stepped up. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, as we record this podcast, it is December the 8th. That is exactly to the day, 35 years since a law student dropout called Frank Witkevich walked into an office building in Queen Street, Melbourne, where there were a thousand people working, and shot eight of them dead and wounded another five. It became known as the Queen Street Massacre. It was a terribly serious mass shooting, but somehow it has been obscured by comparison with the Hoddle Street Massacre, which preceded it by just 10 or 12 weeks, and by the Port Arthur Massacre, which was some nine years later. For some reason, it's easier for us to remember the other two but not Queen Street. There's no logic to this. Frank Witkevich was a troubled young man. He wasn't stupid. He was intelligent. He was the son of two hard-working migrant parents. His father was a Croatian house painter called Drago Witkevich. His mother, Antoinette, was an Italian national who'd migrated back in the late 50s or early 60s and she'd married Drago and they had two children, an older sister that I see no point naming and Frank. And they lived in a relatively modest house in West Preston and they worked very hard at their respective trades. Uh, Antoinette worked in hospitals and Frank was a painter and the two children, Frank and his big sister, studied very hard at local Catholic schools. And Frank appeared to be a relatively normal child, although looking back on it later, I think some people saw little points of difference. He was intelligent in some ways. He had a terrific memory for statistics and sports results and that sort of stuff. He could be quite amusing. He was quite a good mimic and his friends at school found that he could be quite entertaining and funny. But there was a different side to him. And as he got older, the different side manifested itself more and more. Now, it turns out that after the massacre that the police found a, a note that he left at his parents' house, I think, in which he said that the seeds of doom were planted in him when he was eight years old, that he'd felt in himself, even as a very young child, that he was depressed and lonely and angry or a mixture of all those things, and that this had become stronger and stronger in him as he got older. But by and large, people did not notice much wrong with him. He studied extremely hard at a Catholic college in Preston, was then known as Redan College, was later renamed, I think, Samaritan College. And he was accepted 
into the law course at Melbourne University. Now, the Melbourne University law course is a fairly elite course, particularly back in the 80s. It was regarded as one of the harder courses to get into, and it required students with very good marks. And to some extent, it was probably a fairly elite course. People recalled later that Frank Vitkovic, the kid from West Preston, had turned up wearing a collar and tie, which was unusual. And he'd also turned up with his father with him, which was probably equally unusual. And so it was that from the start of his law course, Frank Vitkovic stood out a little bit as someone who stood out a little bit. He wasn't quite at ease in the course that he was in, and yet having got into it, he had to work very hard to pass. And he was totally driven. He had a very driven personality. And this manifested itself in other ways as well. Frank trained and practiced incessantly at tennis and at snooker. He was a good tennis player. He'd won local titles, you know, as a school kid coming through the local school clubs and all that sort of stuff. And he he won cups and, and titles and things. And he also played snooker pretty well and played a lot of it. It was a part of his increasingly obsessive personality that he trained so hard at things which ultimately didn't really or should not have really mattered to him. But they did matter a lot because in his second year at university, I think his first year was 1984, his second year was 1985, his grades went down. And one of the problems, or the main problem was that he'd injured himself playing tennis, or at least he'd injured his knee doing something, and that meant he could no longer play tennis well, and he couldn't train, he couldn't practice the way he used to, because his knee hurt, and he couldn't get the same exercise, he couldn't put weight on it, etc., etc. And what happened then was what happens to many a young athlete who is injured. He lost confidence, he lost drive, he lost direction, and he gained weight. He could no longer get the exercise that he'd had for some years, and he started to put on weight. And as he put on weight, his already fragile self-esteem started to corrode more and more. And we have a situation where this young guy who's obviously got a few problems and is on a bit of a knife edge psychologically, he's getting fatter, he's losing his fitness edge, the thing that he felt made him you know, the equal or superior to other young men. And he, he couldn't play the game that he was good at. He couldn't even really play snooker as well as he used to. And so he got into this spiral. You know, a lot of people faced with this situation probably would have shrugged it off. But Frank Vitkovic was not like other people. He got into a spiral of depression and anger. He gradually became marooned on this sort of island of his own expectations. He was a perfectionist who was condemned not to be able to live up to his own sense of self, his own high standards. And so by the end of 1985, his second year studying law, he was starting to lose his grip on his subjects. He wasn't 
performing as well. He deferred his course for a year and then he attempted to do art subjects instead and one thing led to another. And in the end, the law faculty at Melbourne University told him that he'd lost his spot and he was no longer a law student at Melbourne University. This, I suspect, would have been a crushing rebuff to Frank Bitkovic. It probably engendered great feelings of shame and failure because of his parents' faith in him and their pride in his achievements to that date. And so an already bad situation became rapidly worse, mostly because of what was in his head. The reality is that he could have gone and got a job somewhere or studied something else and, you know, life could have gone on. He didn't have to study law in order to live a good life, but he couldn't see it like that. Now he became more depressed and all those psychological chickens came home to roost. And some of his old schoolmates who'd seen him walking around Preston in this era, in early 87, mid 87, they noticed that he walked funny. He developed sort of a funny bobbing walk. Now, whether that was his knee or what, but they noticed that his gait was different. He didn't look like the guy that had been the tennis champ at school. And they noticed that as he walked along by himself, he was talking to himself, which I have to say is never a great sign when you see somebody walking along the street with a strange gait, talking to themselves, you tend to think, oh, they're not travelling that well. And indeed, in this case, Frank was not travelling well. Now, in July of that year, 1987, of course, there was the Hoddle Street Massacre. That had erupted out of nowhere at Clifton Hill, where a lone gunman, uh, Julian Knight, had, because of a similar psychological breakdown probably, anger and and depression and so on, uh, lashed out and did a totally unforgivable atrocity. He shot strangers walking past and uh, he killed seven. He did not turn the gun on himself as he thought he would and that was naturally a massive, massive news story in a country in the 1980s which really had not had mass shootings in the way we know happen in some other countries, notably America. And the Hoddle Street massacre or shooting was something that undoubtedly had some influence on Frank Bitkovic, who was this young man with a problem, psychological problem, reaching some sort of trigger point And it would appear, although I don't know that anybody said it then or later, it would appear that that would not be a coincidence, that within about 10 weeks of Hoddle Street, Frank Vitkovic walks into a gun shop, which was then in West Melbourne, in Victoria Street, West Melbourne, just around the corner from the Victoria Market. And he put a deposit on an M1 carbine. Now, an M1 carbine is a military semi-automatic carbine. It's made to shoot a lot of bullets rapidly, you know, one after the other, but semi-automatic, bang, 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 very fast. You can put a big magazine of bullets in it and then remove that and put another one in. You might have them taped end to end if you were keen so that you could flip it over and 
shoot, I don't know, 16 or 18 or 20 bullets and then flip it over and do it again. It was a 30 caliber assault rifle. It was made to shoot humans. It was made to shoot people. They don't really have many other uses, those sort of weapons. But in that era, um, almost anyone could buy almost anything. And Frank Vitkivik went in there. He produced a permit, shooter's permit, in which he'd stated his reason for wanting to buy a gun as that he was interested in hunting. He put down a deposit on the M1 carbine. He went away. He came back not long afterwards with some more money and he paid off the carbine and he bought, I believe, 250 rounds of ammunition for the carbine. So there he is. He's got an M1 carbine, 250 rounds, and he had 10 magazines which meant that he could load each mag with a lot of bullets and have them in a bag with him, and that would give him a lot of firepower. This, of course, should have been probably a warning to those who sold the weapon to him, that a young man from the suburbs comes in and he buys an assault rifle. He's got no history of being a hunter or any of those sort of things. He's not living on a farm and he buys 10 magazines as well as a lot of ammunition. It doesn't look great. But no one said anything. No one did anything. He went home. He hid the weapon at his parents' house. Uh, They didn't know and his sister didn't, didn't know that he had it. And at some point in the coming days, he must have sawn its barrel off because when The massacre happened subsequently. It was sawn off. And we'll be back after this. On December the 8th, the fatal day, in the afternoon, he goes to Melbourne Uni. Now, he was no longer a student at Melbourne University at this stage, but he was a lonely, sort of weird guy. And while at the university, he had sort of befriended a friendly and pleasant woman called Mary Cook. Now, Mary Cook was an older lady. She was a a senior receptionist at the student union, I think it was. And as such, she saw a lot of students and people who needed help or guidance or whatever, and she talked to them. And he got that way that he used to talk to her because he was obviously a fish out of water and a bit lonely and a bit strange. And he used to talk to her and she was quite pleasant to him. And so even though he'd left the university, now and again, he had part-time jobs around the city, he would drop in at the uni and talk to Mary Cook. And on this day, it was a hot Tuesday in early December, the 8th of December, he walks into Mary Cook's office at the student union or the union building and he has a brown bag with him that he kept looking at. He put it down at his feet and he took Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilant. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.
spoke to her. And he chatted to her in a way that showed that he was probably a bit under strain, although he was sufficiently odd anyway that she didn't think he was much different from any other time. But she noted, Mary Cook noted that he looked untidy and unshaven and sad. He looked depressed. He told her that he had a job to do at the post office, whatever that meant. Then he added, you're always a lovely lady to me, and he took her hands. As he said it, it was quite an affectionate thing, as if he was sort of being affectionate, but also perhaps saying goodbye. And then he added a strange and slightly sinister thing. He said, but I hate your assistant. The previous time he'd been into that office, he'd had an argument with Mary Cook's younger assistant, who probably wasn't as tolerant of him as she was. And then that afternoon, he left. Now, by this stage, it's probably 2.33 o'clock. And he left carrying the brown bag that he'd carried into the university. We don't know what he did for the next hour and a half or whatever, but sometime before, say, 4.15pm, he entered the Australia Post building at 191 Queen Street in the city. Now, this was a building of some 18 floors. About a 1,000 people worked in it in that era, a lot of people. It had, among other things, Australia Post Credit Union on the fifth floor. And in the credit union on the fifth floor worked Frank Vickovic's old schoolmate, a guy called Con Margellis. Now, Con and Frank had gone to school together at Redang College in Preston a few years earlier. They'd met, I think, in year 10. So they'd done year 10, year 11, year 12 together at the college. And they were quite friendly at that stage and they played tennis and snooker together and got along pretty well. But, of course, their paths divided at around that time because, ironically, in a sense, Frank had done better at his exams and he'd got into law at Melbourne Uni for all the good it did him. And uh, Con Margellis had left school and gone to work for the Australia Post Credit Union, where he had a you know quite a promising job. And what Con didn't realise was that his old schoolmate, in the intervening couple of years, had become so strange and had developed a sort of hatred of Con. For some reason, Frank Vitkovic had all this anger and depression and all that, and he channeled it for no good reason, no known reason, into a hatred of his old school friend, Con. Now, why he did this, we don't know. Maybe he thought Con had somehow given him the brush off. Who can tell at this distance? But certainly Con wasn't aware that they'd ever had a a major bust-up or disagreement. But the fact remains that Frank Vitkovic, in his fevered imagination, he had started to hate Con Margellis and somehow blamed him for all the things that had gone wrong with Frank's life. And so what Vitkovic did that day, it was a not much of a plan, but basically he was out to get Con. He went to the fifth floor where the credit union was and at exactly 4.17, 
he walked into the credit union office. He asked to see Con, and when Con came out, he pulled out the sawn-off carbine from under his jacket, and he pointed it at his old friend Con and pulled the trigger. He wanted to murder him. But miracle of miracles, it didn't fire. He actually hadn't cocked it properly. Now, this is the first of a series of small miracles. Margellus escaped and hid in the toilets. His life was saved. But next to him was a girl called Judith Morris. She was just 19 and she'd just become engaged. And this time the gun worked and Frank Vickovic shot her dead. We have to say here that the Queen Street Massacre, terrible as it was, could have been much worse. Because it turns out that Frank Vickovic, when he'd bought the carbine from the shop in West Melbourne, which is no longer there, he'd been cheated in that the gun was faulty. It's probably one reason it was fairly cheap, I imagine. I'm guessing it was at the low end of the cost and Frank wouldn't know enough about it to know that. The problem was this, and it's a good problem as it turns out it saved many lives. The spring on the trigger mechanism wasn't working and so if you pulled the trigger to fire the gun, the trigger would not spring back to the correct position so that it could be fired again. And with a semi-automatic, of course, every time you pull the trigger and it springs back, you can pull the trigger again and fire another shot. And in that way, you could fire a dozen shots in, you know, 10 seconds or whatever. But this had this fault. The trigger spring was shot. It was no good. And Frank Vickovic, it can be seen clearly on the CCTV footage that was later studied by the police. And after he would fire a shot or attempt to fire a shot, he would look down at the rifle, obviously perturbed because it wouldn't work, and he would have to jiggle the trigger and push it forward manually before it would fire again. And this meant that after every time that he fired it successfully, he would have to fiddle with it to set it up to fire again. This reduced an extremely lethal semi-automatic assault rifle, anti-personnel weapon, into effectively a bolt-action rifle because he had to manipulate it each time he wanted to fire another shot. And that pause, that enforced pause between shots, meant that people were able to run away from him. If he fired one shot and hit someone, which he did, sometimes he killed them, sometimes he wounded them, other people in the vicinity would get a chance to run away and hide. And that is what happened. And instead of shooting, you know, 15 or 20 people perhaps at the credit union level, he took off, I think, on the lift up to the 12th floor. And he gets out of the 12th floor where there was the stamp collecting bureau, the philately bureau, and it actually had a security door because probably they had valuable stamp collections and so on. Security door was there, but a very friendly person who worked there, naturally not expecting a crazed gunman to turn up, thought that the guy with the stubble on his chin and looking a little bit wild-eyed was probably just another crazy stamp collector, 
this nice fellow, John Dryack, opened the door for Frank Vickovic and let him in. He was shot for his kindness, John Dryack was, but he survived. Other staff in there cowered as Vickovic stalked back and forth, shooting at them every time he could make the trigger work. He killed Julie McBean, who was 20. He killed Nancy Avignon, who was 18, and Warren Spencer, who was 30. He then walked downstairs to the next floor. There was no rhyme or reason to this. The man was just crazed. He was doing crazed stuff. Clearly, he intended, I think, for this massacre to end with his own death. On the next floor, the 11th floor, he shot dead Michael Maguire. Then he also shot dead Marianne Van Uke and Caroline Dowling. They were hiding under their desks, but he could see them. Then he shot a man called Rodney Brown. Also shot on that level was a man called Frank Carmody. Now, he took a bullet in the back and he suffered other wounds as well, but he was still alive. And Frank Carmody watched Vickovic closely. And he watched as Vickovic turned his back on him. And Frank Carmody saw a fellow worker, one of his mates at work, workmates, called Tony Joyer. And Tony Joyer was a much smaller man than Frank Vickovic. Frank was quite burly and so on. Tony was a little guy. He was a father of four. He was a quiet man who'd never particularly distinguished himself before. But on this day, he stepped up. Uh, He saw his chance and he jumped on Frank Vickovic's back and pinned his arms from behind. And when he did that, it motivated Frank Carmody, already wounded, already got a bullet in him, and another third person to rush forward and help him. They managed to wrestle the rifle away from Vickovic. They handed it to a a female worker who was there. She rushed off and hid it in the fridge in the lunchroom. And then Vickovic, who was crazed and strong and mad, he ran over or dragged over to a window that was, now we're on the 11th floor, it's a long way up. The window's already been broken by one of the bullets. He goes to the broken window. Tony Joyer hangs onto Vickovic's ankles. Vickovic jumps through the window to jump to his death. Tony Joyer hangs to his ankles to try and save him. But eventually, after some seconds or whatever, Vickovic kicks his way clear and falls 11 storeys onto the footpath. The armed police had arrived just in time to see this happen. The alarms had gone off. Police were coming, swarming from everywhere, including one we've talked to on this program before. And he fell to his death on the footpath in Queen Street. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. 
The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. And so all we can really say is that at that moment, Frank Vitkovic's pain was over at the age of, what, 22? It had all ended for him. But along the way, he had condemned eight other families to a lifetime of horror and sorrow that had just begun. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is Jonty Burton. For my columns, features and more, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule, one word. For advertising inquiries, go to newspodcasts sold at news.com.au. That is all one word, newspodcasts sold. And if you want further information about this episode, links are in the description.